welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jack Beard, Associate Professor of Law and co-director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecom Law Program at the University of Nebraska College of Law. We will discuss his work on the Woomera Manual on the International Law of Military Space Operations. So welcome to the show, Jack. Hey, good morning. Pleasure to be here. So for those listeners who, like me, are not familiar with the international law governing military space operations, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what that law is and what the sources of the law governing that, uh, that area of, of military operations in space would be. Right, right. Of course, there's basically nothing in the U.S. military inventory that doesn't depend on space. It's, in fact, all of the advantages the U.S. military had pretty much disappear uh, without the assistance of space assets. You know, where, where planes go and where bombs drop and where tanks and ships can drive, I mean, the signals from space uh, and the, uh, the ability to control things from space end up being essential. So space is a huge asset and it has become vulnerable because other countries, especially you know, potential American adversaries have capabilities now, uh, and you've heard and read about some of these things. Um, the French are particularly irritated uh, here recently with uh, a Russian satellite that kept uh, coming closer and closer to it. And the, uh, the law that governs uh, space uh, and would govern space military operations, parts of it are untested, um, but unlike some areas of um, endeavor, like uh, cyber, where we don't really have any international agreements in place to govern activities, space law is different. Space law has an outer space treaty, uh, and it's, it's there and is worth study and has been there since 1967. It's just that large parts of it have never been tested. And, you know, academics have two ways of looking at problems, I guess. Uh, in this area, one of the ways a lot of them do it is uh, talk and write and pontificate. <laughs> they, they look and they see and they declare the things they think should be and the way things ought to be. And uh, that's not really a, a good analytic for the approach. Uh, the best is to start with treaty interpretation. And treaty interpretation often is not as interesting or as sexy as some people might like. Uh, it involves a lot of work with respect to state practice and, uh, and going back into the travaux of these treaties. So um, the Woomera Manual is, uh, is a major instrument to help states uh, with this analytic. Uh, and the, the other really important thing um, that I should say about the Woomer Manual and the effort by the universities that founded it and the experts around the world working on it is to provide a more predictable uh, area of operations for military and, and political judgments about space to try to avoid conflict, to make a more predictable uh, environment for making decisions and have more predictable uh, rules uh, to avoid miscalculation and hopefully... Uh, avoid conflict because to this point happily we haven't had an armed conflict in space 
And that's a good thing. Uh, when there is, if there is a conflict in space, uh, then there's all sorts of damages to the world that are possible. The uh, European Union estimates that something like 6% of their collective gross national product depends on satellite signals, um, not just navigation for pizza delivery and stuff, but also the timing used for uh, infrastructure and banks and so forth. Uh, so a lot depends on space, and uh, it would be wonderful if states had a better uh, frame of reference to proceed, not one based on what um, a few professors have uh, articulated or come up with, but a more thorough study and assessment of how the Outer Space Treaty applies. And then, of course, if there is an armed conflict, you have all these rules on Earth in the maritime and uh, land and air domains, which are uh, great in the sense that they are oriented towards, as one of their cardinal principles, avoiding damage, unnecessary damage and excessive damage to the civilian population, which is a good thing. You'd want the same thing to apply in space, but it's a little tricky uh, applying some of these rules in space. And so that's the the major purpose of the, of the manual. I'd say also, before you ask me the the next questions about the space stuff. Uh, the billions of dollars wrapped up now in commercial and civil space operations are uh, only expanding. Uh, as you may, if you follow this closely, you see, for instance, SpaceX is determined to create its own little constellation of satellites. Uh, they're launching another 60 here soon with uh, one uh, rocket. They want uh, you know, 15,000 or so in the constellation they're trying to create. Uh, they're filling up the skies. Space is getting congested, competitive amongst all the commercial interests. Uh, plans for landing on uh, the lunar and other celestial bodies continue to expand for the search for uh, minerals and resources. And you know, military forces are unfortunately, if it's if human history is any guide to it, where there are resources and states and companies, there's often conflict. In fact, there's always been. Uh, the hope would be that military forces that are involved in this would also have um, a reference tool uh, for the sort of uh, struggles that they might face. And uh, the last thing I'd say is we're, um, we're extremely serious here about space at the University of Nebraska. We have the biggest space law program in North America. We do civil, commercial, and military space. Um, we have the largest faculty dedicated to this, and our graduates are in the, the commercial, civil, and military space fields. And as for me, I just note that this is wonderful to research. And of course, everybody you talk to says their topic is the most wonderful that could possibly be uh, designed. It is particularly rewarding for me because amongst my students, uh, uh, we have the LLM program in space, cyber, and telecommunications, and there are uh, a lot of military officers each year that the U.S. government entrusts us with to uh, educate in this uh, field. And so uh, in my class now, I have um, an Army, Navy, and Air Force officer, um, all three uh, slotted to go off and serve at the U.S. Space Command. And so you know, I'm, I'm, I have the privilege of working and studying and researching and teaching and stuff that's uh, immediately 
filled with practical applications. Mm. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about the origins of the Wimmera Project, you know, which institutions and individuals are going to be involved in preparing the manual. That'd be great. And, and also maybe a little bit about what you see as the kind of most critical initial parts of the project as, as it's proceeding. Yes, those are, those are great questions. And, and the, the follow-up on that, too, is the biggest topics that uh, seem to be coming up when we present these issues across uh, the country and the world, uh, the, the, most, the most vexing or difficult uh, topics. Well, we should begin with a little village in Australia called Woomera. Um, it has been the site of um, the, all the major Australian uh, space programs, their, uh, their initial launches. It also supported this facility, uh, the U.S. Uh, Gemini and Mercury programs, um, it's named after um, uh, a, a village uh, taking its name from a device the indigenous uh, tribes used to launch spears. Um, so Woomera is, has a certain uh, importance, uh, in this, a big importance in space in Australia. Two universities there, the University of Adelaide and University of New South Wales, are two of the four founding universities for this project. Uh, the other two are University of Nebraska and the University of Exeter in England. There are all sorts of other universities involved in this effort, and the experts from those universities and from governments um, meet uh, and uh, discuss these uh, rules and uh, talk and argue and write and draft, and we are, um, we are continuing through this process this year uh, hoping, hopefully, coming to the end of this process at the end of this year. Um, the manual uh, is currently slated under contract to be published by Oxford University Publishing. And uh, we also have a, a great event coming up, uh, hopefully in November, where we will take the manual and meet with governments uh, who are invited to come and comment on it. That makes it an international law uh, significantly more important than just another law review article. So, uh, and we've got a pretty good response from governments that want to come and, and meet with us about it. So, so that is its current status and its origins. And the the hope is that uh, states looking at this uh, will add their their own views because we have to focus on state practice in this document. Uh, you know, with treaty interpretation, and, and this goes to the point about what the issues are that we have to face, with, re, with treaty interpretation, you have, of course, the obvious mandate to look at the plain meaning of the terms, the way they're used in the document, um, the object and purpose of the agreement. Uh, in, with respect to the Outer Space Treaty, structural things actually end up being a little more important than some because when the negotiating states of the world met in pretty much two blocks with a few independent entities, the, you know, the Soviet-dominated, American-dominated bloc, they made the decision to take some key terms out of the text and throw in the preamble. The preamble isn't where substantive legal obligations are found. Even though some of those things are very attractive to some states, now they lost the battle in the negotiations over where those would be placed. And then when you go past the structure and plain meaning and object and purpose and you start looking at two other things, subsequent practice by states in applying these terms, and then 
looking to the travaux, the preparatory work, to see how these ambiguous terms uh, come out of the interpretation that you have provided, uh, you get a lot of clarity um, that's not often addressed in um, a lot of outer space law writing. And it's funny because as you look through the travaux, you're looking at documents from the 1960s that are sometimes um, Xeroxed and, and twisted and and you know, there's no way to search these documents. You, you must you must suffer through the reading of the documents, uh, and the result is interesting uh, discussions about some of these uh, key issues that we face right now. One involves uh, clamoring by corporations and others about creating zones in space. You know, let's let's create exclusionary zones. Let's create safety zones. Let's let's carve up parts of space to stop other states from doing things and. You might have thought that the French protests about the satellites, that uh, the Russian satellites confronting them, um, would have involved those sorts of things. You might think there might be a clamoring for the creation of things, these things, but that's not what's happened. And it's interesting to look at that, and people ask about it. Um, and so that sets the stage for where we have come from, to where we are now, to where we're hopefully reaching a conclusion soon. We, um, we have one more meeting before we uh, do the state engagement uh, in the Netherlands. Um, but so having set that stage, particular angles, questions, concerns that uh, you'd like me to, uh, to talk about? Mm. Well, I mean, it sounds like unsurprisingly some version of kind of quote-unquote property rights in space seems like it might very likely be a uh, object of contention when the states start discussing what they think the law is and ought to be in the future, yes, as, as you've alluded to. Are, are there other aspects of the law governing out of space that you've uh, uh, dealt with in preparing this project uh, uh, that absolutely. you expect to be also contentious well, among let me, states? Let me say something about property. Um, and, you know, all documents, all foundational, constitutional sort of documents, which the Outer Space Treaty is, have principles that they express that, in theory, at their extremes, pushed up against each other, uh, you know, uh, present a possibility of conflict. I mean, easy things like liberty and equality push to their extremes, right, uh, get to that. Um, the Outer Space Treaty establishes the principle of free use, freedom of exploration, free access, uh, and lays that out in 1967 as this uh, new province of mankind that everyone has access to. At the same time, it goes on in the document to restrict that free use. And perhaps the most important and the most universally accepted and the unquestioned customary international law rule that's there is you can't go out and appropriate space. You can't, uh, and in the non-appropriation principle means you can't assert sovereignty over space. Uh, you can't uh, occupy it uh, by any means, uh, and so the non uh, the non-appropriation principle, including non-occupation and non-sovereignty and all that stuff, would preclude a lot of things that you might want to do otherwise in space. That's one of the problems with creating zones. Any zone that you create in outer space or on a, a celestial body that restricts another space, another country, from exercising its rights under the Outer Space Treaty 
are immediately problematic. Uh, and that is another, another critical thing about the Aerospace Treaty, that people don't appreciate and find startling and stunning uh, when they look at the Aerospace Treaty for the first time, is that this is the only area of human endeavor, uh, with, with very limited exceptions and narrow ones, where the actions of a non-governmental entity are the actions of the state. The uh, Soviets did not want private actors in space. They were concerned that, at the time, the only private actors were lackeys of the Americans and defense contractors. They didn't trust non-governmental entities in space. And so the, the agreement that emerges has in Article 6 this obligation to make the actions, the conduct of these non-governmental entities, presumably corporations, uh, the actions of states. So the actions of, of American corporations and French and Chinese corporations are very much bound up in the governments that are responsible for them. This is a responsibility rule in Article 6. It has all sorts of interesting repercussions as uh, as states go forward. So you've got you've got restrictions on you've got free use, and then you've got restrictions, and then you have uh, another problem, and that is are the uh, resources that are extracted from space, thus you know resources not in place, aren't those able to be sold, trafficked, transferred, and and the question about that then is, if, as it comes back to Earth, whether it's platinum or, or whatever, or whether it's used, the more desirable resource, water, to be converted into oxygen and fuel and, and hydrogen and fuel, um, are those uh, resources not in place able to be exploited? And there lies a, a divide between countries right now. Uh, the United States uh, pushed forward, as it has for you know, decades, stating that free use of space includes extraction of resources. Uh, of course, even when you're extracting resources, you don't own the ground and you don't own the territory in which it's being uh, uh, extracted. But the United States has passed a statute. It's remarkable in the midst of all the things Congress can't do that they've taken the time recently to set forth the rules for extracting resources in space. But they have. Uh, other countries, uh, Luxembourg in, the, in, the, um, uh, in Europe uh, has uh, passed a similar law. And you may laugh when you hear Luxembourg, but they're actually a rather big power in space with the satellites and, and telecommunications. Uh, so some countries are clearly taking the view that you have this right. Uh, other countries object to this as a unilateral sort of action that ought to be first subject to international governance. And then there are countries in the middle, um, some of the big countries that probably have potential mining capabilities that criticize the United States but don't refer to this practice as illegal. And so we are, we are very close to... Um, extracting resources from asteroids. Uh, we've had, uh, not we when I say that, just humanity has had satellites, uh, space objects, devices land on uh, asteroids and conduct samples and so forth. So we're, we're close to making these debates uh, not academic but real. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it sounds like the project that you're describing is very much in a kind of analytic, almost like a restatement sort of 
than like looking at what law is out there and trying to kind of synthesize a kind of coherent coherent description of the law governing space. But it also seems like a lot of the kind of formal international law that's out there was created or adopted in a political and technological context that's, you know, meaningfully different from the one we're facing today. I wonder whether preparing this project along with, you know, your fellow uh, academics has kind of caused you to reflect any on whether there are areas of the law governing uh, outer space that governments ought to be thinking about revising in light of changes in you know, politics and technology, geopolitics, state relations, and so on. Yes. Well, you know, uh, treaties uh, do. There is an accepted way of dealing with um, fundamental change of circumstances uh, laid out in the Vienna Convention of the Law of Treaties, and it's an extraordinarily high standard, um, arguing that there have been vast new geopolitical changes don't get you very far uh, in applying international law. Uh, When you look at um, the fall of the Soviet Union and arguments between the former satellite countries over environmental issues with um, the countries complaining, you know, there's a new world order here. We we were occupied by another country. We didn't want this dam. Uh, And the international court not eager to start saying that's all changed the fundamental circumstances of the international agreement. And your question is also excellent in the sense that space law is advanced international law too. And that if you're talking about space law, you really have to have a group of people who are well-versed, well-educated, and experienced in international law. So, you know, the geopolitical situation is certainly different. It's not a... uh, it's not two camps po- poised against each other. We've got a whole bunch of other countries involved. That doesn't change a lot of uh, the treaty interpretation. But the other point that you make, um, we've got just a completely different experience going on in space. Instead of a few military satellites, we've got thousands of satellites. And commercial satellites now outnumber the military ones. Um, We have all sorts of international cooperation and international space station. Um, How does this all figure uh, with the old agreements? The International Space Station is perhaps an example of how this works. Uh, It's it's an international endeavor with all these different countries contributing different parts and personnel to this vast, expensive, maybe the most expensive single object ever created up there. you know, how to go about doing that. The, um, the countries that did it turned to the, the Outer Space Treaty and took the jurisdictional principles that are laid out there and the international law jurisdictional principles on Earth and put together a, an agreed system about the way uh, countries would um, assert their jurisdiction over the activities on this uh, on this object, and it's a, it's an interesting result. You may have uh, have read about um, questions about an American uh, astronaut engaged in some sort of cyber activity, looking into 
perhaps misusing the computers to look into records of former spouse on earth and like and there was an echo who which laws govern this well that's not a problem uh of course part of it is that uh you know american law french law if if the governments want it to extend with their nationals wherever they go that can include space and you'll see that countries have uh, added to their jurisdictional schemes the word space object and and made the jump to extend their laws under the framework the Outer Space Treaty provides. So, you know, some of the disputes you see in the media um, are really not disputes. They're people who are just discovering um, space law. And, and so that's, that's one side of it. I think there are other um, complications with how many corporations are now getting involved. Uh, you 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 do you you are going to have to ask how article 6 is going to be applied the responsibility rule because it just it's a completely different setting from it was from what it was in 1967 but i think the the constitutional framework is is solid and i think there's room for states developing it the way they did uh, in other areas, I mean, the law of the sea evolved over centuries and is now a pretty elaborate scheme. Uh, we've only had 50 plus years to be doing this. So I think it's it's going to be a legal, political, uh, social uh, effort uh, to uh, ex- interpret the uh, Outer Space Treaty and apply it. I think the foundations are there and the um, industrial and technological side are representative of one other problem that we all know as lawyers, and that is that law is never ahead of the technology. It's always the other way around. Uh, and that's, that's why it's fun in law school to teach technologically-based courses, too, which more and more lawyers need to be doing in law school. And for other areas, not as much for space law, but for other areas, the, we always know that the people who are taking advantage of technology being ahead of law are criminals who are proficient at this, and then help, help us build laws after they've gone, gone down these roads. So technology and law is also a big, big factor here. Mm-hmm. Well, so Jack, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what you hope the Woomera Manual will accomplish in relation to the international space law that it's it's addressing. In other words, what are sort of the goals of the project in terms of the long-term impacts, and you know, what do you see the role of the organization as being in relation to the future development of of international space law? You mentioned the word restatement, um, and restatement of laws have a lot of value. Um, there hasn't ever been one for space law. Um, that means a commitment to state practice and treaty interpretation and not a, a lot of uh, pontificating by professors. So, uh, you know, the hope is to have a building block to go down the road we've been talking about here for states and operators and lawyers who, uh, for companies and for military uh, organizations, uh, you know, based on a, uh, a humble approach uh, to a space law as, as opposed to some sort of you know expansive advocacy program um, a, a humble approach with this that you know ideally uh, could be turned to as other manuals that try to be true to the law and other statements to provide guidance 
in, in uh, situations where there's uh, tension and the possibility of conflict, it would be uh, a great achievement if uh, it were to be used in a, in a productive way in that area. And then in the worst uh, case, in the event of an armed conflict in space, uh, there'd be a huge, huge premium on avoiding unnecessary damage to objects in space, which serve all sorts of humanitarian and emergency and uh, you know, social and civil purposes. Uh, so if this contributes towards that, that would be a, a, a good thing. And I think it's a, a starting point for uh, identifying uh, and working on um, some of the, of the areas where we don't have some clarity yet from state practice. I think it's extremely unlikely that the Outer Space Treaty is going to be uh, amended by the states involved. Uh, I think if it were done again today, states there'd be a lot more states involved in the negotiation. It would be a very different product. Uh, but that doesn't mean that state practice can't move towards you know resolving some of these things and interpreting these terms. So um, the manual could be a, uh, a the beginning of a guide uh, for that with hopefully good results. Great. Well, Jack, thanks for coming on the program to talk about this important project. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you.